0: You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant news making issues and individuals.
1: 9-11 was a defining point for our nation, as it was for many individuals who chose different ways to serve. Some enlisted. Others changed their majors and career plans. My guest tonight, Farah Pandith, chose to return to public service going back to the United States Agency for International Development. After some time in Afghanistan, she joined the National Security Council to fill a new role dealing with Muslim outreach. It was from this position that she traveled to over two dozen countries and met with scores of Muslims, as well as women fighting violent extremism, teenage boys and girls searching for their identity, a normal process for young people made even more difficult, often in countries that saw them as a threat. Later, she worked for Secretaries Clinton and Kerry, who backed her initiatives as much as they could sometimes struggling through limited resources and bureaucratic turf battles. Today, she is a senior fellow with the Future of Diplomacy Project at the Harvard Kennedy School and an adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her new book, How We Win, captivated my attention as it both encapsulates where we are as a nation and most importantly proposes what is needed to defeat the extremist threat. Great to have you with us.
0: Thank you, it's a pleasure.
1: President Trump has said repeatedly that ISIS is defeated. In fact, just a few weeks ago, speaking to US troops at an Air Force base in Alaska, he said, you kept hearing it was 90%, 92%, the caliphate in Syria, now it's 100%. We did that in a much shorter period of time than it was supposed to be. And yet clearly not everyone agrees with President Trump, including senior members of administration. So Farah, where do you stand today?
0: Well, the president has it wrong. He's measuring success based on physical territory, and that isn't the measuring stick we need to use. In order to understand how to defeat the ideology of the extremists, which is in fact the problem, because if people were not being recruited to the armies of groups like al-Qaeda or ISIS, we wouldn't have the problem we have today. So we're not looking at this in the right way. President Trump is telling a story based on sort of a visual Here's what we had, 90%, 92%. He's using all these numbers. It sounds really bold and wonderful. But if you pan out on the globe, and you look at where is the ideology that is recruiting young people, we just saw the attacks in Sri Lanka. We know that things are happening around the world, and that's the real threat that we are facing.
1: Let's go back to 9-11. How did our initial reaction as a country create an environment where Muslims found themselves, perhaps for the first time in recent history, defending their religion in a way that they never thought imaginable.
0: We have to look at the threat we're facing today in the context of a pre and a post 9-11 for a lot of different reasons, not just because of the technology that has advanced in the last 20 years, allowing ideas to ricochet around the world and to be absorbed in a millisecond. But we also have to think about what it means, what identity means in today's world. Uh, And for young Muslims, post 9-11, one of the most shocking things that I found in traveling to dozens of countries around the world, talking to Muslims under the age of 30, was that no matter where they were, whether Muslims in a Muslim-majority country or a Muslim living as a minority, that they were experiencing the very same thing they were asking themselves questions about what it meant to be a muslim what's the difference between culture and religion and this fierce attention post 9/11 where they've seen the word islam or muslim on the front pages of papers online and offline every single day since 9/11 has had a very profound effect on how they think about themselves and 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 it's not you know it's important to remember you know, every young person growing up asks questions around their identity. This is not unique. But so,
1: let me be a devil's advocate yes. for a minute, because when you look at the number of terrorist acts that have taken place in the United States and around the world, most of them have been committed by Muslims.
0: Terrorist activities based on it, groups like al-Qaeda and Shabaab and the Taliban and now ISIS have revolutionized what terrorism means in the world today. We've seen... In the modern usage of terrorism, what we've seen in in modern times has been everything from the IRA to the FARC to other terrorist organizations. You're correct. There is something very different about what has taken place with groups like Al-Qaeda or the so-called Islamic State that have used the name of Islam to build their armies, to think about a global struggle for identity and belonging uh, around a very corrupted version of religion. It's made a difference in the world. Their ability to change the way we've thought about who we are as humans on the planet, how we have thought about defense, how we've thought about the impact on our cities and on our nations has absolutely changed. But one of the things that's extremely important as we think about this threat is not to sit in the situation in 2019 going, which is the biggest threat we need to face? Are we more willing to think about being killed by this group or that group? The fact of the matter is, there are almost a billion Muslims under the age of 30 around the world. And that's the demographic that groups like the so-called Islamic State are focused on to build their armies. And that statistic alone should be shocking to most people, because we know that Muslims live all over the world. It's not just in a particular region. And if young people are growing up, being lured in and being focused on by terrorist organizations that are trying to make them think, that the only way to be a real Muslim is to join their armies. You don't need tens of thousands. You don't need a billion Muslims under 30. You need one or two to do something on the streets in Boston. You need one or two to do something in Sri Lanka. So when we think about this threat, it has to be thought about from the perspective of what is the thing that exists right now How is it growing, and are we prepared to deal with the reality on the ground of what this is going to manifest in the future years?
1: And let's talk about the future years, because you've traveled to almost 100 countries, and you met with a lot of young people in Europe. Mm -hmm. Your European counterparts at first were surprised that you would even make this effort. In fact, you had to talk to your American colleagues and explain and justify why you thought this was important.
0: In the years right after 9-11, the Bush administration was obviously, rightly, trying to figure out how to defend ourselves. We stood up the Department of Homeland Security, we increased our attention on intelligence and intelligence sharing, we tracked financial resources of terrorist organizations, and we were doing all these things to make sure that Al-Qaeda and groups like it could not take hold and get the upper hand. But we also know that in 2006, President Bush said in his national security strategy that that this is a battle of arms and a battle of ideas. And the battle of ideas component, this ideological us versus them narrative that a group like, at that time, Al-Qaeda was using to recruit young people. We knew that in order for us to be able to fully defeat these kinds of terrorists, we needed to make sure that we were winning the ideological war, that they were not willing. And the only way to do that was to make sure that young people were finding a way not to find that ideology appealing, not by governments telling them what to think or how to, how to believe in themselves, but by their own peers working with them to say that that ideology is not a good one to go down. Violence in the name of Islam is not a good thing. So what we did as a U.S. government is to experiment on talking with civil society, Muslim youth, To say what's actually happening in your communities how are you thinking about these issues why is this ideology appealing to you and then working with local ngos non-government organizations on the ground to scale up and build out programs of all different kinds that actually work on the issue of identity and that's what we experimented in in europe and we were doing this well advanced i have to say compared to where the european governments were at the time But remember, that was in 2007 and 2008, and by 2009, when we were beginning to see that we had built networks of like-minded thinkers who were doing these kinds of things, European governments had begun to actually think more creatively about how to do the same thing we were doing, which is listen to their Muslim communities, talk to Muslim youth for themselves, Find out what they could be doing to jumpstart a different narrative than the narrative of the extremists. Well, let's
1: talk about one of the organizations that you talked about quite a bit in the book, and that is CEDAR, that was formed by the British Muslim Rauf Ali. How did that get started? Who is he? And what has been its progress?
0: Well, the CEDAR network is one of the first experiments the U.S. government made in trying to build networks of like minded thinkers. One of the things I was hearing all across Europe was that young Muslims growing up didn't see the kind of role models that they needed to see to actually think about a future in a different way. And so we wanted to say, you know, look, there are a lot of them around. Just because you haven't heard of them doesn't mean that they don't exist. So how could we think about ways to actually bring their backgrounds and their stories to the forefront? How could we think about mentorships? How could we think about bringing a different type of young Muslim into the architecture of how people talk about what it means to be muslim and not just pair being muslim with terrorism and so as we talked about how to do this one of the things that i knew we had to do was to bring muslims from all over europe together so that they could come up with an idea on how to do this it wasn't for the u.s government to say this is what we're going to do and so what we did is we worked with a london-based ngo called the institute for strategic dialogue And we asked them to help us think through who were the young Muslims that we could bring to the table to in fact spend some time together and talk about what could we do? How could we build this out? And let me remind you that in 2008, this kind of stuff was not being done. There was no government that was going out and meeting a social entrepreneur in Sweden and a social entrepreneur in Sicily and somebody who was a very creative cultural icon from the Netherlands or a musician from London. We weren't seeing that kind of thing happen. So the United States government was the convener and the facilitator and the intellectual partner in doing this, but we weren't telling them what to do. And we we handpicked 50 young Muslims that we knew had the potential to think creatively and build the kind of network and share ideas. And we we went to Salzburg, we went to the Salzburg seminar, which was a, a really beautiful location to spend three or four days. And we basically had a retreat where these 50 young Muslims had a chance to spend time talking through what it is that was needed. And by the end of it, they all agreed that they wanted to build a network across Europe, a pan-European network that would offer an opportunity to see different kinds of role models and have training programs and to do a whole series of different kinds of things. Uh, And that was born and it was called the CEDAR Network. And that was facilitated through the US government with the help of both the Salzburg Seminar and the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, but it was the US government that gave the money for it to get off the ground.
1: It's nice to hear a positive story like that, want to pivot to something that's not quite so positive, and that's the very uncomfortable relationship we have with Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that it really distressed me when I read that you were still finding material dated as late as 2018 that was being put in the schools, not just in Saudi Arabia, but across the world. Why is Saudi Arabia still doing all this to really foment extremism?
0: One of the things that is very important in this book is to tell the American taxpayer what I saw around the world. I cannot be an honest broker in telling you the kinds of things I saw around identity formation and the system that is underlying extremism if I wasn't honest about what I'd seen in almost 100 countries around the world vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia. And what I talk about in the chapter called Plague in the Gulf is an opportunity for us to take a look at what would happen if you're an entity and you're designing a strategy to make sure your way of interpreting Islam is the only way that people absorb, and that you believe that your way, this monolithic version, this very strident version of an interpretation of Islam, is the only thing that will be allowed to be seen and heard and grow. The tactics that Saudi Arabia has deployed over decades, this is not just a matter of, you know, a couple of years, over decades, and they've spent billions of dollars doing this, has manifested in a lot of different ways. They, you talked about textbooks that teach a very specific way to be a Muslim. Those textbooks are so severe and so strident in their interpretation of a monolithic way to be who is and who is not a Muslim that the so-called Islamic State used those very same textbooks when they were standing up their so-called caliphate.
1: But Saudi Arabia has been the victim of extremism.
0: This is a a great line that Saudi Arabia will give you. We're a partner with you in fighting extremists. We have our own problems with extremism. If that, and that is the case, that is true. But that doesn't take away from the fact that whether it's textbooks that they have deployed for free around the world, all over the world, so that people can sort of understand what it means to be Muslim. Whether it is a translation, a very specific translation of a Qur'an that says that there is an us versus them.
1: Let me interrupt and just ask you to elaborate on that, because you talked about how there's so many different editions of the Qur'an, and so some are much more extremist in their interpretation than others.
0: A holy book that is hundreds of years old and is being looked at today, just like the Bible or any other old scripture, there are many people who have translated it and, and the words are very complex at how you think about what the origin of the word is and what word you're going to use and how you translate it. It has many, many meanings. You can't just pick up an old version of the Bible and expect somebody to be able to read it and say, I get the context of it. It requires really serious study. What the Saudis have done is they have scrubbed away nuance. They've scrubbed and they've interpreted it in a very strict way. They've given this version of the Quran for free around the world. It's come to America, it it exists in mosques and in prisons around the United States. These versions of the Qur'an exist in countries all over the world and in schools and in community centers. And the reason why that is important is because when people look to Saudi Arabia, their expectation is that because two holy sites are in Saudi Arabia, they must know more than anyone else. There is no Vatican in Islam. Saudi Arabia is not the Vatican. The point of this is not to say that it is just the Qur'ans or it's just the textbooks. It's to say that there has been a systematic endeavor over decades where the persuasion of being one kind of Muslim has infected communities that have very old Islamic heritages and traditions. They have changed the way people live and eat and dress and believe. Uh, And the reason why this is important for us to understand as we look at the issue of extremism is because if you believe that there is only one way to be a Muslim, and you believe that there is a monolithic way to be, and you're eradicating 1,400 years of history and all the nuance that happens around the world, it it makes it easier for a group like Al-Qaeda or the so-called Islamic State to build off of that.
1: So the title of your book is How We Win. My last question, will we win?
0: We can only win if governments, private sector, and regular citizens get behind fighting the ideology of us versus them.
1: Thank you so much for being our guest on Global IQ Minute. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.